sermon text this morning is Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 21. And he, that's the angel that was speaking to John, he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. They may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is God's word. We've made our way to uh, the end of Revelation. It's the last page in my Bible, uh, in all likelihood your Bible as well. In fact, the very next page in my Bible is the table of weights and measures and biblical monetary units. So we are at the end. And we're at the end of our series as well, this series that we started second Sunday in January, running to the end here of March. And as we've made our way through Revelation, we've taken Revelation more in themes. We've looked at segments and sections rather than trying to plot uh, any kind of end times sequence. And I appreciate the affirming feedback that I've gotten uh, from you and the congregation. Uh, I was a little anxious heading into Revelation, quite candidly. Uh, that's because there's so many opinions about the book, some of which uh, people feel emotionally deeply. And uh, if they feel like you're treading on their particular view, uh, they, uh, they don't like that. And I understand that. I hope I've not treaded on anybody's viewpoint as I've gone through this. Uh, we conclude now. We conclude with this final text, and first what we want to do is 
account for the warning. Because you read this uh, warning in verses 18 and 19, this two-part warning spread over these two verses, and you think, what does that mean? What is that about? What does it mean to take away from this book? He means the 22 chapters of Revelation specifically. What does it mean to add to the words of this prophecy, as it says a couple of times? If I adopt the wrong eschatology, eschatology being the doctrine about the end times, if I adopt the wrong eschatology, have I blown my salvation? Well, the warning here is, is not to make us uh, nervous interpreters. Uh, the warning here is, is not about misreading revelation. The warning has to do with what unbelief does with what God reveals. It's a warning about unbelief. Unbelief takes away from what God reveals. Unbelief adds to what God reveals. Though we all want to rightly understand Scripture, every one of us want to rightly understand our Bible, every verse in our Bible, and we want to obey it, in some ways we all misread it in that the culture of it, the culture of Scripture is so foreign to us. We weren't there when these things happened. We don't we don't know uh, every experience that the Bible talks about, uh, and we don't pick up on some of the cultural cues and associations with first century and centuries before that realities. So as much as any of us want to get it right, and we do want to get it right and understand the Bible as it's written to us, we can still get some things wrong. I'm thinking of things out on the periphery, second and third tier kinds of Areas where the church debates on what's the right way to understand this. I'm not talking about the core. The gospel is clear all through Scripture how to be reconciled to God through Christ. So the warning here is, is, is not for turning us into anxious readers of, of Revelation. This warning, this two-part warning in verses 18 and 19 as you're looking at it. It's Revelation. It's, it's a piece with the whole drivetrain of Revelation. Revelation is for teaching believers of the Lord Jesus to long for his return. Because the message of Revelation is that uh, the church is going to win. Jesus has already won. He's the victor when the thing opens, the book opens. And the message is the church is going to win because of Jesus' victory. We're going to get in on this glorification that awaits us. And so... Um, Adding to or taking away from Revelation, specific to this book of Revelation, taking away would be denying the return of the Lord Jesus. Adding to would be redirecting the message of the church's victory and everything that Christ has accomplished, the, the gospel according to Revelation. Adding to would be uh, uh, redirecting the church's hope away from this onto, onto something else. And, and to compete with the message of this book is what the warning is about. To compete with the message of this book is something unbelief does. And unbelief, all through Scripture, not just the last book, but all through Scripture, unbelief is consequential. It requires belief to say, come Lord Jesus. That's what we get in verse 20. And up above it in verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say, come, the Spirit of God who works to, to amplify and magnify the, the Son of God. 
uh, and, and give praise and glory to, the, to, to God the Father, the, the Spirit, verse 17, and the bride, the church, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Don't fight the message. Don't redirect it. Don't deny it. That is what unbelief does, and unbelief has consequence. What we are as believers and so as believers, as followers of the Lord Jesus, though we may not understand every, every lane and channel and alleyway of, of revelation, it all culminates in this great, come Lord Jesus. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things, verse 20, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Amen means it's true. When you end your prayer with amen, most of us pray and at the conclusion we have been taught to say in Jesus name amen amen means it's true come lord jesus verse 20 there's a, there's a lot of longing in this word soon soon is an elastic word biblically considered for us soon means now <laughs> i wanted it yesterday same-day delivery. Don't make me wait. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus' return is a certainty. This is our hope. But now biblically, when we talk about hope, we have to separate or distinguish. We have to distinguish between how the word hope is used biblically and how we use the word hope in everyday living. Because when we say hope, I'm hopeful for this or that, it's really a hope so. I'm hopeful they can find a, a cure for this coronavirus sooner as opposed to, to later. We talk about hope as a hope so. Usually when we refer to hope, that's my hope, hope so. But biblically, when the Bible uses the word hope, it's no so. Not as arrogance, but, but confidence. Biblical optimism is, to put it another way, biblical optimism is not cheer up, everything's going to get better. Biblical optimism is hoptimism, to create a word. Uh, look up, everything may not get better, but God hasn't gone anywhere. This is our confidence, and the Bible calls this hope. Just like biblical faith is defined, remember Hebrews 11, biblical faith is defined as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is trust and what I have good reason to believe is true, even though I don't see Jesus now. And the scripture is honest about this. Even though I don't see Jesus now, I have good reason to believe I will because my faith informs my hope, my faith feeds my hope, my faith energizes my hope. They work together in tandem. But every generation of Christians has work to do with this. Faith is not static, hope is not static. It's dynamic. It's something moving and living. And so every generation of Christian has to cultivate a faithful longing to see Jesus appearing. We have to learn how to stay alert and awake in hope. And so every generation of Christian has to square up with this word soon. 
He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. That's verse 20. Verse 7, behold, I am coming soon. It's repeated. There's even the uh, reference to the time is near in verse 10. Soon, near, imminent is also a word that gets used. But what we have to find baked into this reality of soon as it relates to God is that it's an anytime reality. That's what soon and near means. We're meant to long for this. The longing is the point. You remember back in Romans 8, I've, I've cross-referenced a couple of times now in previous sermons to this, Romans chapter 8. I find a lot of um, connection between Romans 8 and the end of Revelation. In Romans chapter 8, uh, says this, that creation is groaning and creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Jesus said his return is soon. Creation groans with eager longing, waiting for this. Soon, near, these terms we have in Revelation 22, means it's an anytime reality. And what I want to help us do is cultivate this longing. If the longing is the point, as we conclude the book of Revelation, just again looking at, we haven't looked at everything in Revelation. We've left a lot uh, on the table to, yet to be considered. But as we've gone through Revelation in about 11 sermons here, 11 or 12, as we've done this, remember uh, that longing is the point. And we have to cultivate this longing for his appearing. The whole last section of chapter 22 is, come Lord Jesus. Yes, I'm coming soon. Come Lord Jesus. That's the response of the church. But every generation has to learn how to cultivate a longing for his appearing. That's what I want to help you do here at the end of our time. This in verse 20. Let's just start with verse 20 and kind of work back up the text. So if your Bible is open... You're looking at verse 20, the come here, C-O-M-E, come Lord Jesus. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come Lord Jesus, return. Verse 20, come Lord Jesus. It's actually an echo of a famous psalm, Psalm 95. I've said all along to you that so much of Revelation is uh, with Old Testament precedent. And so here in verse 20, let me read you Psalm 95. This is, a, is, a, is the cross-reference uh, for this idea of the coming of the Lord, wanting something from the Lord for him to do, that is for him to come back, to return to us, to be physically present to us. Psalm 95, as I read it, keep an eye, I'll just read it, you listen to it, Keep an eye on Revelation 22, verses 18 through 21 here. Hear the echoes of this passage in Revelation we're in, in Psalm 95. Psalm 95, it's 11 verses. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all God's. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, 
and his hands form the dry land. Oh, come, here's the idea again. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, unbelief. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Psalm 95 is in the background here in Revelation 22. People go astray. There in verse 10 of Psalm 95, for 40 years I loathed that generation. I said there are people who go astray in their hearts. People go astray for a cluster of reasons. But by the time we get to the end of Scripture, Revelation 22, we see that one of the reasons people go astray is we don't cultivate a longing for the Lord's return. Unbelief is, is a temptation. Uh, we fall in love with this world. We trade the world to come for this one we have here and now. What was true back then in generations past, God's people well before us that we read about in, in Scripture, what's true of every generation that follows, including ours, is the inclination to stray, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. My favorite hymns. I love the line from uh, Frederick Beekner. We're just like ancient Israel, only more so. But the call in Psalm 95, I read you Psalm 95 to show you this. Not just the symmetry, but the call to the community, let's come and worship God. By the time you get to the end of Scripture, the call is to the one we worship. You come back to us. You come back and be with us. You come back and make sad things come untrue. Put wrong things right. Inaugurate the worship that never ends. No more distraction. No more distancing. To never again be led astray from the lover of our soul. We have to cultivate a longing for this. It doesn't just happen. We cultivate it. We seek to, to build and develop this muscle in our spirit, the Holy Spirit of God residing in us. Because of our belief in Jesus, the Spirit of God wants us to experience this longing for his return, Jesus' return. He, the Spirit of God works this in us. Now, how does he do it? That's what I want to give us. And I want to use a classic book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. Uh, Knowing God would be on my list of all-time books that Christians ought to read. If you just had three books that you were uh, going to read uh, as a Christian, I would commend Knowing God as one of them. And Packer in this book, this is my 1973 copy, it's almost as old as I am, I think I inherited this book from my mother or father uh, somewhere in my teens. Packer in this book, page 207 in my copy here, he makes six statements 
that he commends we tell ourselves over and over again. Now, all this is in service to cultivating a longing for the appearing of the Lord Jesus, which is the next great thing on God's calendar. And Packer says, when we awaken in the morning, we should tell ourselves these six things. When we go to bed at night, tell ourselves these six things. Just whenever our mind is free, whenever we need to concentrate our mind, sync it with our, with our heart as believers in the Lord Jesus. Packer gives us six statements and he says, repeat these, preach these to yourself. Because as you do, what you find is God's spirit picks up on this and uses his truth to cultivate in you and me a longing to be the generation that sees the Lord Jesus return for us. This should be the curated desire of, of his people. Here's his statements. Number one, I am a child of God. We should tell ourselves this every day. Number two, God is my father. Number three, heaven is my home. Number four, every day is one day nearer. Number five, my savior is my brother. And number six, every Christian is my brother too. Here they are again. I'm a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My savior is my brother. And number six, every Christian is my brother too. I like the way he phrases the last two statements where he says there that, that my savior is my brother and every Christian is my, my brother too. It doesn't reduce Jesus, our Lord, to call him our brother. The scripture does that. He's not ashamed to be called our brothers. It's in Hebrews. In fact, it doesn't reduce Jesus at all. It places him where he wants to be, which is with his people. I've said to you many times, he's not a reluctant savior. That's got to sink in our hearts. He wants eternally to be with his people. You, you don't get Jesus without his people attached. And his people, he's made his family. And so repeating these six biblical truths to ourselves, it's just one way. It is not the only way by any stretch. It is not the way. It's just a way I'm giving you in this particular sermon as we close this series. But there are other ways we cultivate the longing. We cultivate the longing for his return through our obedience. We cultivate the longing through spiritual disciplines. We cultivate the longing through serving people who need our service. We cultivate the longing through a, a, a variety of practices, not just mental exercises. So, so be sure you hear that as we go through these. It's, these are not six magical statements that we just repeat them to ourselves like a self-help mantra. These are six biblically distilled truths. And as we repeat them to ourselves, the service of that is to cultivate a longing for the Lord's return. Something that all Christians have to cultivate. And we don't cultivate a longing for his return as any kind of escapism or world-hating disposition. That's unworthy of Christians to fall into. God does, does not give us life to be lived here for us to go hating on the world. He's calling people every day 
from the world to himself. And he wants to use us in that and does. Particularly in seasons like this where a lot of things are uncertain. It's uh, the, the soil that used to be hardened, can, uh, we can find it being softer. Pray for discernment. But what happens when we keep ourselves mindful of these six things? When we repeat, as John uh, J.I. Packer says, if we repeat these things to ourselves every day, over and over throughout the day. What happens when I keep myself mindful, first of all, that I'm a child of God? The first statement Packer gives us. Well, it means that his truth, what I'm reading here in Revelation 22, belongs to me. It's given to me as one of his children. There's an intimacy in that. I am among the servants, verse 6, who are told by God through John what must soon take place. Verse 6, he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants including us, what must soon take place. And behold, verse 7, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. In other words, who cultivates the longing. The longing is the point. Who keeps the, to keep the words of the prophecy of this book is not to understand and be able to chart out everything in Revelation, though that's all fine and good, it's, it's to cultivate a longing. I mean, you can understand Revelation, be a real egghead about it. And it, and it doesn't inflame your soul. If, if you go to Revelation or Daniel or any other book that deals with the future as just sort of this uh, Easter egg hunt for, for little morsels of, of, of goodies that you can take and Mm, I love that. I love, I love knowing what's going to happen. You've missed the point. The longing is the point. If you cut, it's like Howard Hendricks used to tell us for years. When Howard Hendricks was still living and taught Dallas Seminary, he used to say, he used to say, gentlemen, he had this, he was short of stature, but large in voice. He said, the point of going through the scriptures is so the scriptures go through you. His little Philadelphia accent. I Vividly remember him saying that. I don't care how many times you've been through the Bible. I want to know, is the Bible going through you? And if the Bible goes through us, if we are keeping the words of the prophecy of this book, verse 7 here, there's a sense where there's a longing. There's a cultivated, developed longing for the return of the Lord Jesus that we can think of nothing better. I can think of a lot of good things. A lot of things I still want to experience. There's still national parks I want to see and wonders of the world and conversations with people I want to have. But I can think of nothing better than seeing my Lord. And I didn't come to that automatically as a, as a you know, it just came with my belief, standard equipment. Oh, that had to be cultivated. It has to be worked into us. And, and one of the ways is these statements, Packer commends to us the rehearsing of truth I am a child of God if I really believe that earnestly believe that then it it translates into energy to serve to be the servant that I'm called to be if we keep before ourselves our core identity as children of God 
This first statement Packer says we tell, preach to ourselves every day, I'm a child of God. It means the, everything in the Bible is for me. Not independent of everybody else. That's not what we're saying. But that the word of God goes to the servants of God. Because we have been adopted as the children of God. And if we are children, then God is my father. That's the second statement that Packer commends. We repeat to one another over and over and repeat to ourselves. God is my father. These six statements made uh, by Packer, they're made in a chapter. This uh, chapter of knowing God is toward the back. The chapter is called Sons of God. Where Packer makes the case that of all the gifts of grace, adoption is the highest. He says if, if you had to summarize the whole message thrust of the New Testament, it, it's, it's God adopting a, a people for himself through the ministry of Christ on our behalf. And I think he's, he's absolutely right about that. He says our adoption by God, God becoming our father through adoption, what was necessary for God to do to make us his children it's the centerpiece of, of all theology. And, you know, it's, it's certainly precious and close to my heart as an adoptive parent myself. I've tried to make it special for my youngest, a badge of pride and honor for my youngest son to know he was chosen. I mean, these other four kids, we had to raise them. They came from us. But you, we chose you. We went out looking for you. And we would go looking for you again and again and again, son, because this one who bears my name, Cole's son, he, he's ours. And, and God has become our father by the same rich choosing, only it's, it's exponentially and superlatively so much greater, higher, nobler. In fact, we, we can't emphasize how special adoption is. There are no superlatives. But now looking at the text again here, note how overwhelmed John is. Verse 8, what he sees and hears in this vision. So much so he tries to worship the messenger. We would have too. Verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, don't do this. I'm a fellow servant with you. And your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. But who is God? He is our Father in heaven. All the richness and the intimacy and the beauty of that. He's our Father in heaven who does whatever He pleases. Psalm 115 says that. But what He pleased to do is bring us in by way of adoption into his love and his grace. And he's also pleased to bring heaven down to earth in the form of this eternal city that we just spent the last two Sundays walking. This takes us to Packer's third statement, mine from the Bible, meant to cultivate our longing. Heaven, heaven is my home. Third statement. I hope as a result of the last two Sundays, in particular looking at the eternal city, but also other Sundays uh, in this 11-week trek through Revelation, we've looked at some other scenes of heaven. And I hope 
you anticipate heaven now not as some wispy, floaty, harpy, (laughs) disembodied uh, kind of uh, surreal experience, but something concrete, something that is so uh, alive, it's, it's recognizable even to us in some ways of, oh, when I was experiencing that uh, on old earth, I, it was a, there, was a, I, there was an echo, there was a, a resoundingness, there was an anticipation of this. Oh, it's, it's recognizable to us in, in some way. It's a magnificent city as we looked at. A river runs through it and the glory of the nations go into it and nothing spoils it. Heaven is my home. C.S. Lewis' words are overquoted. It's like he's the 13th apostle or something for evangelicals. But I haven't found anybody who articulates what it means to have a longing for somewhere else and yet be fully present to here. I haven't I haven't seen better words than what Lewis put in Mere Christianity. A lot of you'll know, you'll recognize the statement. Lewis's words, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is I was made for another world. To that Christian say, amen, it's true. We are. And we know this world is so easily corrupting. It's seductive. It's preoccupying and distracting and presently distancing. But this world, as we experience it, so disordering of our loves, convincing us it can satisfy us entirely. We've, we've got to orient ourselves day in, day out to our identity, to, to, to who our Father is, and to where home actually is. We don't cultivate a longing for Jesus to see and be with him if we don't find ways to dial in regularly to heaven being my home. That's three of of Packer's uh, statements and now the other three. Fourth one is every day is one day nearer. We can tell ourselves that. Every day is one day nearer and you're not wishing any day away when you say that. You're building, you're cultivating your anticipation to see the Lord, to be eager and expectant. Every day is one day nearer. Don't miss the point of longing. It's not a longing for death. Death is our enemy. We don't long for death. When Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, it doesn't mean he wants to die. Death is the way most of us will access the presence of Jesus, but we want to be part of the generation that gets to bypass that and experience the Lord's return. So to tell ourselves daily, every day is one day near, it's no death wish, it's cultivating our life wish. To live in the undimmed presence of God and finally know living what it really is supposed to be. What we get right here and now is the shadow lands because of sin. There's a cap on your sense and sensibilities and senses. The the eternal city is the place to be. And so every day is one day closer. And every day the world and the church go about doing what the world and the church does. That's verse 11. See it there again, verse 11. The evildoer still doing evil. The filthy still being filthy. The righteous still doing right. The holy being holy. 
You know, interestingly, John in Revelation, God through John in Revelation has not given him this vision to assign us tasks. I don't find Revelation full of a lot of things we're supposed to do necessarily. Other scriptures inform this, but God hasn't set this up so that if we successfully complete this assignment of tasks, this uh, duty roster, then we get to see the Lord's return. Or if we collect enough virtues, then maybe Jesus will come back in our lifetime if we'll prove ourselves worthy. No, we, his gospel has already preached to us of our unworthiness to receive and to earn anything good from God. When he says in verse 12, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. What you and I in Christ get repaid for is what Christ has done on our behalf. That's the whole point of having him advocate for us, having him justify us before his father. Because I haven't done enough and I can't do enough to take myself there. What I've done is put myself outside the city. And God overrules that in my case and brings me in by way of Christ's sacrifice for me. We're called to obey here, yes. But what Revelation is for teaching us, it's for teaching us about the, the imminent return of Jesus and to long for this. And what we find as we cultivate this longing is it motivates righteous living. The want to for obedience is often found in the longing to see the Lord. To gain Christ, who is not gained by our good deeds, but by God's good grace to us, to gain Christ is to be included. Verse 15 talks of the, uh, the ones that uh, love and practice falsehood. And you know, when we're honest with ourselves, so I, I, still, I can still go there. I can still love. Well, maybe in the moment, but we also are taught to hate it. And we've, the guilt that we feel and the, and the shame that we feel is because we've really offended a person, the Lord Jesus. And we don't like that. And we want to be characterized by repentance. The point of the book is verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Get in on this. This longing, this cultivated expression. Last two statements that Packer has given us. My Savior is my brother and every Christian is my brother too. Five and six. My Savior is my brother. He's identified with himself, himself with us that closely. But in the same breath, every Christian is my brother too. And I, and I hope if, if we carry anything out of this time of social isolation, it's a renewed appreciation and commitment to that reality of the church. Every Christian is my brother, my sister, separation, isolation, it's how we defeat a virus. At least that's the tack right now. But it's not how we live as those longing for his return. We are to encourage one another. We are to goad one another, help compel one another, share the taste with one another of the good things of God. I want you to experience a longing for his return. And you want me to experience that because when we are longing for his return, not as an, an automatic, there's practices that go with this. 
But when we're longing for his return, it's remarkable how unpetty we get and how, how our, 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 so much of our interest in being right fades and we're able to prioritize the needs and concerns of others because we're looking forward to the day when we won't fail each other anymore and we won't have to misunderstand and offend one another and take one another for granted and separate from one another. And the reason why is because Jesus, the Savior, is also our brother. He will complete the work he began in us, guaranteed. And so when we say, come Lord Jesus, it is because we are children of God. It is because God is our Father. It is because heaven is our home. It is because every day is one day nearer. It is because the Savior is our brother. And it is because every Christian is our brother and sister as well. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. That's how the book ends. Amen. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Father, for this time that we can look in your word. Thank you for how you have uh, cared for us, loved us, brought us in on something that is so much better and greater than we even know. But we thank you for how you give us these tastes and these views. We pray, Lord, that you will keep us mindful <clears throat> of all that you've promised to be for us in Jesus. These six statements and many others that we can preach to ourselves and to one another. Would you cultivate a longing in us for that day? Not because we want to escape, not because we hate the world, but because we want to see the renewal of all things. And we want to experience life in your presence as it is supposed to be lived. This is our confession in faith and hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.